Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Cindy and I were in Atlanta in recent days, and we stayed at a hotel immediately adjacent to Centennial Olympic Park. That park there is infamous in one way. It is the site of the 1996 Olympic bombing by radicalist Eric Rudolph. He killed two people and injured more than a hundred with a pipe bomb that he placed beneath a bench. I remember that day so well like it happened yesterday. And while he will spend the remainder of his days in the Florence, Colorado Supermax prison, that park he tried to spoil has become the centerpiece of a renewed downtown Atlanta. This was Billy Payne's dream all along. I think I have a slide of Billy, at least him in bronze form. That's not a stick in his hand. That's the Olympic torch in his hand. Billy Payne was the CEO of the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games. He wanted that park to be a town hall of sorts, and he thought it would revitalize downtown, and he was right. Next slide, if you would. This is the former site where that park stood, Old now stands, Old, run-down industrial buildings were bought and demolished, and the 20-acre park was constructed in its place. And now, all around it, you will find all this world-class accommodations, sporting arenas, the Georgia Aquarium, music venues, horse-drawn carriage rides, a Ferris wheel, and so much more. And there, in the commemorative bricks and in the statues, almost everywhere you look in that park, you will find literal chiseled bodies of Olympians. Ancient Olympians. The most startling is this statue here called Tribute. And it still holds, by the way, shrapnel from that Olympic bombing that was never repaired as a memorial to the tragedy. But as it was the 100th modern games, the theme was a celebration of past and future of the modern athlete and the ancient Olympian. And today, there are about 40 individual sports in the Summer Olympics. There are the usuals, like swimming, and gymnastics, and weightlifting, and cycling. In Paris, in the summer of 2024, there will also be skateboarding as an Olympic event, surfing as an Olympic event, along with breaking, a brand new event, breakdancing. I feel like it's back in the 1980s again. It is a much more diverse group of competitors than the first modern Olympics, years, uh, more than 100 years ago in 1896, and it is far different than the ancient Olympics. Back then, 700 plus years before Christ, the Olympics was a one-day event, not a month-long extravaganza on NBC. And it had only a half a dozen competitions, running, jumping, Discus throwing, boxing, 
pancration, which was an ancient form of mixed martial arts or cage fighting that usually resulted in one of the competitors dying, and wrestling. Wrestling was believed to be the most popular. Now, this is really important that we begin right here today, and I am differentiating between wrestling and wrestling. Wrestling, W-R-E-S-T-L-I-N-G, versus wrestling, R-A-S-S hyphen, L-I-N apostrophe. Now, if you do not know the difference, you are in for an education today. Wrestling is the Greco-Roman tradition. Wrestling is the Deep South redneck tradition. I'm talking today about Milo of Croton, Cleostros of Rhodes, Pietro Lombardi, Olympic champions of wrestling, though they are not household names, not Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, or Andre the Giant. Gold belt holders of whatever organization at the time was sanctioning all the beer and the Skittles. It's important that this distinction be made before we go any further. One more time. Wrestling, not, can I get a name? Anybody know what wrestling is? Anybody? Okay, good. Thank God. I thought I was by myself there for a minute. Wrestling is a real competition. Wrestling is a circus-styled form of entertainment. Wrestling is an ancient sport, the oldest sport we know of. Wrestling is a post-World War II carnival invention sustained by cable television. Wrestling requires years of development, intense conditioning, professional coaching. Wrestling requires a tannin bed, steroid use, and a soap opera storyline. To succeed at wrestling, one needs skill and strategy and strength. To succeed at wrestling, one needs some athleticism to be sure, but they were better served by marketing savvy savvy and showmanship, and particularly if they can take a folding chair over the head without too many ill effects. Jacob is a wrestler, and for the first time in his life, he is about to be engaged in a real wrestling match. Well, how in the world did you see that in the Bible? I don't see that there. Because I love this Bible story. And it is so much more multifaceted than the few verses that we read from the lectionary today. It is an expansive tale that takes up about half the book of Genesis. It is a sprawling, rambling tale as good as you will find anywhere in literature. There is family rivalry. There is love and hate. There is violence and confrontation and attempted murder. There is sex and marriage problems and then more marriage and then more sexual problems. There are divine visions. There are angelic appearances. I mean, what do you like to read? Do you like history? Do you like theology? Do you like filthy romance novels? Do you like suspense? Do you like mystery? Do you like fantasy and sci-fi? It is all right there in this single story. Jacob's story has a lot of variety. And the only thing that is constant in his story is that he is a sneaky, conspiratorial shyster. 
He is a cheat. He is a fraud. He is a swindler. Jacob's is a circus-styled life. He is a carnival barker. He is a showman with more marketing savvy than substance. He has a few gold-plated belts hanging around his waist to be sure, but they are not real. Everything he has built is a lie. Constructed on a stunt, he is living off of a gimmick. He is a wrestler. But now he better get ready to rumble. Because he must face a wrestler. He must face himself and the forgery that he has created. And it's important again that we are talking about the distinction that Jacob is the wrestler, not the wrestler. It used to be that parents named their children appropriately. That could go in a hundred directions. I mean that in ancient times especially, parents named their children after an event possibly that was occurring about around the time of their, of their birth. Or they might name their child based on the circumstances of that birth. They might name that child uh, something uh, about their first appearance when they first appeared. Here's a, here's a few Old Testament examples here. Moses. It's an old word that means to be drawn from the waters. Every time Moses' name was called, it was a reflection of where Pharaoh's daughter found him floating in the reeds on the Nile River. Isaac means laughter. That's what the name his mother gave him. Because when she heard the news, postmenopausal that she was, that she was going to birth a child, she laughed out loud. And she laughed all the way to the hospital paying the maternity bill with her social security check. Esther means star. And it wasn't uncommon for a child in Persia or in the Middle East to be named Esther in January, if they were born in January or February, in the winter months when the star Sirius was so bright in the sky. So now we come to this guy, Jacob. His name means heel grabber. When he and his twin brother were born, the oldest is Esau. By the way, Esau's name means Harry. Esau is born first. But as he emerges from the womb, Jacob, the second twin in the womb, is holding on to his brother's heel as he is taken from the womb. And so you have this little hairy baby, and you have this little heel-grabbing baby, and ancient Hebrews, being creative people, said, oh, there's Harry and Heel Grabber. And that's how they get their names. But Heel Grabber also means one who causes others to stumble. Now, how would you like to give that name to your kid? The one who will cause others to stumble. And you could say that he either lived up to or down to The name that he was given. He would grow up to steal his brother's inheritance. 
as I already referenced, which wasn't hard. Old Harry was more or less adult. And probably just waiting for someone to convince him that wrestling was real. Jacob then duped his mother into becoming an accomplice in the theft. He tricked his blind, senile, dying father on his deathbed to change the will. He bamboozled his eventual father-in-law in a colossal business deal that might have been the first Ponzi scheme ever created. And he amassed a fortune by conniving and cheating and taking advantage of others. This is the young man mothers warned their daughters about. Stay away from that boy. This is the young man fathers warned their sons about. Do not get into any business dealings with Jacob. He will always win. And when he's about to lose, he'll cheat in order to win. Every time he said, my name is Jacob. He was making a declaration about the kind of life that he had led. Jacob didn't fight fair. Have you ever heard of the term geometric progression? Now I'd heard the term maybe in geometry class growing up. But before I knew what it meant, my father played a little Jacob-like trick on me to show me what it meant. He said to me one day, I was 13 or 14, what if I gave you $1,000 to go change all four tires on my car? Or, I'll pay you a penny for the first lug nut and double it every time thereafter. I want you to think about this for a second. 13-year-old does what? I'll take that thousand. By the way, Dad never gave either of these. It was just a game. But a 13-year-old would say, I'll take the $1,000. That's more money than I'd ever seen in my life. Adjusted to 1984 inflation numbers, please. I'll take the $1,000. But you know what happens geometrically progressing? If If I had taken the penny and Dad had really paid it, if I had taken the penny for the first lug nut, and then it's two pennies for the second, then it's four cents for the next, then it's eight cents. By the time you change all four wheels and there are five lug nuts on a 1972 blue Chevrolet station wagon, by the time you got all the way around, it's almost $10,000. How many of you were going for the thousand? Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. Geometric progression. I think Dishonesty and tricksterism works the same way. I think living out a facade, living out of the shadowed self, the inauthentic self, works the same way. No one ever intends to start out intentionally being a thief or a swindler. No one sets out to make a mess Of their life. It's just a penny here. And a penny there. One deal here. One deal there. One little lie over there. One act of dishonesty over here. No one sets out to build a life. That is nothing but a carefully choreographed charade. But before you know it. It becomes a way of life. Before you know it. It has just begun to progress. 
and double on top of itself until it's just the normal way that a person lives and acts. Every person is a mark. Every situation is an opportunity for advancement. No matter the cost or no matter who gets hurt, every day is a chance to screw someone else before they can screw you out of something. You end up being an empty suit, a shallow imitation of the real person that you could be, of the real person you were created to be. And what is the solution? Well, more times than not, it is an encounter with the real thing. Sometimes we have constructed such lives of dishonesty, even with ourselves, that it is a genuine come-to-Jesus meeting that is required. It requires looking yourself and looking God in the face. In the vernacular of the 12-step movement, it is a searching and fearless moral inventory of the self. It is an admission of our shortcomings and our defects of character. It is a conscious encounter with the living God, resulting in a spiritual awakening. And that is what Jacob had coming. Jacob was about to come up against something, someone stronger, badder, meaner, tougher than he was. And it was going to make all the difference in his life. He was about to be crawling in the mud of the Jabbok River begging for mercy. And it was not for the purpose of humiliating or harming him. It was for the purpose of remaking him and setting his life off in an entirely different direction. We will all come up against things that will undo us. Failed business, wayward children, addiction, time spent behind bars, bankruptcy, infertility, cancer, losing a home, disability, the death of a spouse, a child, or some irreplaceable relationship. Suffering comes in variegated and assorted forms. Sometimes our suffering is self-inflicted. Sometimes our suffering appears random. It's inexplicable. It's senseless. It can be very private. It can be very public. And you will never be without those people who want to come aside you and try to explain all your troubles or try to affix blame for all those troubles or even rescue you from all those troubles. But sometimes we don't need rescue. Sometimes we have to go through the hard stuff in order to learn what must be taught and what can only be taught in the hard times. You must face your pain, feel it, learn from it, and let it do the work of stripping away your defenses and wrestling the illusion of control that you think you have over your life. Because if you think you're in charge of anything in this world, Come on now. This is what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. It's what Janet Hagberg called the wall. Your inner self is just blown to bits so that 
so that all that is left is what's real and authentic. All the games are gone. All the costumes are gone. All the masks are blown away. And now it's just you and your maker. Now we can get somewhere. Dr. James Finley, who studied at the feet of Thomas Merton, rightly teaches that true liberation and surrender, the surrender of our false identities, is the result of our willingness to open our hearts to the aching. Sometimes, all that's left is to wrestle in the mud and to struggle with ourselves and with God. But if we will allow the struggle and our woundings to do their work, they will bring us to a place of serenity. When we permit the confusion and the exhaustion paradox that it is, it will refresh the awareness of God's indescribable love that He has for us. We can come to understand that being undone and done in and knocked down and used up are the very means by which we arrive at maturity and patience and liberation. We finally refuse to avoid our pain and embrace it that God might remake us somehow, some way in this very life.